Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. I want to start by saying Happy New Year. I hope that God will do great things in your life in 2018. I also want to say thanks for taking time to listen to our latest sermon. It's a sermon that I didn't preach, but one that I think is going to benefit you greatly. It'll play in just a minute, and I'm excited for you to hear what Matt has to say about Jesus being the greatest storyteller. Before it plays, I do want to encourage you to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already. If you subscribe, which is absolutely free to do, you'll be notified when we upload a new sermon, which is something we do every single week. We have some incredible content planned for 2018. We have some things coming that I think are going to be impactful, and I want you to hear it. So again, if you haven't done it already, please take a moment and subscribe. As always, I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. All right, so I'm excited for this series. Um, I'm excited for this series because uh, those of you who know me know that I love story. And uh, what would be a mistake uh, would be if I just came out here and told you, well, I love story. I've seen the utility of story. I use story all the time at the uh, school I'm at with the kids, and it works. Um, and because I love story and the way I use story works, that must be the way that Jesus used story, and that must be why it works. That would be wrong, even though it's true. It's true. Man, I've been in a room with uh, elementary kids all the way up to high schoolers, and when you tell them a story, it captures their attention. Um, and you can see it working um, as they're listening and as they're learning, and hopefully as they're changing in response to it. Um, but I, I don't want to just say, therefore, that's why Jesus used story, because it captures people, people's attention. I want to I talk about what the Bible says. Um, but first, let's, let's talk about story, kind of what we think about story. Um, and have, ever, have any of you ever been in a situation where you're telling a story and then you've realized kind of midway that you've already bombed it, like it's just going to be really bad? Um, and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to end this, right? There's supposed to be a climax here, right? And I'm stuck in maybe rising action or something like that. And, uh, you know, bless her heart, but my wife, an exceptionally poor storyteller. Um, and I know a lot of people, and, you know, it's happened to me all the time. It, it, it would go something like this, like, you know, you're telling a story, you're like, yeah, so Tanner and I, we were hanging out with Connor, and uh, he goes to the window and there was screaming man dude was frantic and I'm like oh geez like what's going on frantic Connor goes to the window yeah and um Toby saw like a big cat you know and they're they're sitting with that face like the I'm done with the story face and you're like wait what you're like no that was the beginning of rising action that's not a climax you're not done right? And I began to, to read that face in people when they're like, what? Like, that's done? And I would say then afterwards, like, oh no, I bombed it. And I'd say, yeah. And then, um, <clears throat> then I found 20 bucks. Oh, dang, that's cool. 
found 20 bucks? Like, no, I didn't, but I bombed that story, right? Um, so, but it worked. It, it sort of closed it up, and, 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 it would, and it would get rid of that sort of awkwardness of like, dude, that was just a bad story. Like, you're not good at that. And like, oh, I'm disappointed. But what this shows us is that we, we expect something out of, out of story. We expect a sort of completeness, unless you, you're sort of wacky. Chad has some wacky ideas of what a good movie is. Uh, but if you're normal, if you're normal, you like completeness to story. You like resolution. Um, and there's really, really three things that a story can do, and it's always in this order, and sometimes it's all three of these things, but it's at least one. And it's stories entertain, they teach, and they change. They entertain us, they teach us, and they change us. And it's always in that order. Sometimes people are perfectly okay with a story that just entertains us. It just entertains. And what that means is it captures our attention, it holds our attention, and we enjoy it. But, but when you have somebody's attention, you can teach them something new, something new about the world, something new about other people, something new about themselves. And sometimes that information that they learn can change them. So it's always in that order, ETC, entertain, teach, change, ETC, maybe, etc. right? And when, when Chad or I or other pastors get up on the stage and we tell a story, we're not doing it for the purpose of just entertaining you, or at least we shouldn't be. The, the goal is, is that we will teach you something that will change some aspect of your life to better your relationship with Jesus or have you value Scripture in a new way. But we get up here and we do this in order that you can hear it, we capture your attention, that you learn something from Scripture, from the Word, and that it changes you in some way. That's our goal. And realistically, at minimum, we hope that on Monday you remember what we said on Sunday, or at least a little bit of it. That's realistic. But for Jesus, it was this radically different response to His message, right? We're hoping that at the end you'll be like, okay, yeah, that was decent, whatever, yeah, I'll probably remember it tomorrow. Yeah, it might affect your life. But there's a spectrum of reaction when Jesus is giving a message, right? There, there are people who are men and women who just are like, I'm going to radically change my life. My goodness, I'm radically changing my life here now. And then you had those people that were just ignoring the message. You had those people. And then you had the people who were like, man, you hearing this guy? Yeah, man, I'm hearing this guy. What do you think we should do? I'm thinking we should kill him. Yeah, let's murder him. That's, you had people like that. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if there was a response like that every time, you know, Chad or somebody got up from the stage, there were people like, oh my goodness, I'm quitting my job and I'm joining a monastery tomorrow, right? And then you had Drew in the back like, too much, you're done, right? I'd be like, he's like, after church, right? If there was a response like that, it'd be radical. So Jesus, the response to his message was always radical because he had a radical message. So with this 
radical message that inspired such a spectrum of responses. Why? Why did he so often use story? And that's the question that I I want to address in this first sermon. Why did Jesus use story? And there is a uh, passage that really directly uh, answers this. And it's kind of hard. It's kind of a hard passage, so we're going to break it down together. But I want to read the whole thing. It's Matthew 13, 10 through 17. And he, he really directly answers this question. It says, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? Oh, here we go. Here we go. We're going to get a direct answer from Jesus. And Jesus replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though, and, and now he's quoting Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah in chapter 6. He says, Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not uh, hear or understand, in them fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. So that was him quoting Isaiah. And then he looks at the disciples and he says, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And this, I mean, this passage is hard. So I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is Jesus telling stories so that people just don't understand? Is the point to be confusing, to sort of hide the truth, to veil the truth so that they won't understand? Is that really what this is saying? And there are frankly a lot of views as to why Jesus uses story. But, you know, the ones that are out there, most of them are just too reductionist. They're too Reductions, they reduce the truth of it. And, I, and I'll tell you some of those. Um, so there are those who say that Jesus is just a really good teacher. He's a really good teacher, and that's true. And a really good teacher will tell you a point, and then he'll illustrate the point to make it easier for you to understand. That's just a good homiletician, a good preacher. I do that all the time. I tell you something, and I say, now let me tell you a story about it. Right? I tell you the truth, and then I illustrate the truth. That's a good teacher. But that reduces because the reality is that oftentimes when Jesus was preaching, all he told was a story. He never gave, gave some corresponding point and then illustrated the point. And it's not really looking at this text and taking it seriously. And then you have... Um, what they call the more emergent crowd, um, who look at this and say, well, Jesus spoke in parables because he didn't like propositional truth. He didn't like truth with hard edges. 
right? He wanted it to be more open, more open to interpretation, more relative. So Jesus spoke in parables so that truth would be open to change and enigmatic. It'd be um, something that we could take and sort of put our own spin on it. See, but that's also not true because Jesus didn't only speak in stories. He spoke with truth, with hard edges. Uh, he, he did this either-or dichotomy all the time where he said, look, you're either a tree that bears good fruit or you are a tree that bears bad fruit. There's no tree in the middle that's like, I'm only half fruity, right? There's, not, there's no in the middle tree. You are either building your house on sand or building your house on the rock. You're not like, I built on this softer ground, but it's still kind of firm. There was none of that. It's either this or that. He was very propositional. It's either true or it is false. And he talked like this all the time. So the idea that Jesus spoke in parables because he didn't like truth with hard edges, is, it's patently ridiculous. And then you have, um, from more a Reformed tradition, you have um, people who say, well, this is Jesus specifically speaking to non-elect. That is people that, so in the Reformed tradition, you have people uh, that believe that God chose who's going to go to heaven and chose who's going to go to hell based on not what you believe, based on nothing. He just chose beforehand. And here Jesus is talking to the non-elect and in a way that they wouldn't understand the truth. He's hiding the truth from the non-elect. That's what they say. But that just seems weird. There's easier ways to hide the truth from people who shouldn't hear it. Uh, I could think of one good one. Just not talk to them at all. Just don't tell them. Don't tell them. It seems weird to say, I'm going to tell them the truth in a way that they're not going to understand it because they're not supposed to understand it. Well, then just don't tell them. So what's going on? So, uh, like I said, I think these are two reductionists. So let's, let's go back to the passage in, in Matthew 13. Actually, let's go to what he was quoting. So he quoted Isaiah. He quoted Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm going to read that out to you. Because he says, Jesus says, that the people who are hearing the truth are fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. And this is what it says in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. So he, he's saying he saw the Lord. This is Isaiah speaking. He saw the Lord on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and the other two they were flying. And they were calling to one another. They were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So this is Isaiah. He's seeing the Lord, and of course, he gets freaked out. He says, woe is me, I cried. I'm ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King and the Lord Almighty. So 
He's a prophet who's used to going around and telling other people why they're wrong, but the moment he's confronted with God, he's like, wait a minute, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm sinful. I'm full of sin. I'm not not just surrounded by people who are unclean. I'm unclean. What am I going to do? Right? So they go and they get a coal with tongs and they touch his lips and and clean his lips. They take away his guilt. And then you have the very famous uh, line, where then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So here's God looking for a prophet to go and talk to his people. And Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. And he's probably thinking, man, I, I'm going to get an awesome, I'm like, I'm going to get an awesome message and go talk to these people. So what is, what is it? And God responds, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So basically, hey, go and tell them the truth. And that very truth will harden them. It will make people turn from me. Tell them the truth and they will run from it. Tell them the truth and it will ruin them. And he's like, um, okay. And he says, for how long? <laughs> for how long, Lord? Because he's probably thinking, I can do this for five years, 10 years, 40 years, if there's some hope, right? Or am I just going to go and tell them the truth only to see that very truth harden them and push them farther from it. That's, that's really the message. Where's the hope? How long, Lord? And the Lord answers, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken and no a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. <laughs> so I like, well, that's really horrible. So I'm going to go. I'm going to tell the truth of you, but that very truth is going to turn them away. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear that message. They're going to run from that message. That message is going to harden them. Is there any hope? And he gives this this small hope at the end, he says, but as a terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And we know that this is actually a prophecy of Jesus because later in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, it talks about Jesus, or it talks about uh, the, the Savior coming from uh, a shoot, coming from the stump of Jesse. And we know that Jesse had King David and that Jesus came from the line of King David. This was a prophecy of the Savior who would come and change the world. So basically, Isaiah is getting a message that, look, you're going to go you teach the truth to these people and they're going to be completely hardened to it. In fact, they're going to be completely hardened to it for the entirety of your life. 
You will never see this hope. This was 700 years before Jesus came. You will never see this hope. Your message is the truth, but the truth will harden. And so when Jesus says that these people, when Jesus is just telling them the truth, they're fulfilling that prophecy, he's telling the truth. They hear it, but they don't want to hear it. They're pushing that message away. They, they, they don't want to hear the truth because it, 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 it goes against their worldview. It goes against the things that they already believe, and they're not willing to have that. In fact, Jesus says as, as much in John eight forty five. It says, when Jesus is trying to tell the people the truth, Jesus says this, yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe. So what should he do? What should he do? Just not tell the truth? See, Jesus was running into the problem that we often run to, into as Christians. If you, if you tell somebody um, that you disagree with something because, you know, God values life. God values life. They might just cut you off and be like, this is, you're weird. They might think you're kind of nutty even. Like, ah, oh, this person's talking God stuff. This person's talking God stuff. Now they, they may be like, I can never take this person seriously. It's all this Jesus hokey business. Right? You see that. You can't just go up to somebody and be like, Jesus condemns that. And think they're going to be like, oh, really? Well, I'm going to change. Who's this Jesus fellow who said I can't do this? Right? No, they'll be like, this guy's a nut. This guy's a nutcase. I can't listen to him. I'm never going to take him seriously. Jesus is running into that problem. And I'll give you an example of a girl I worked with. And we had discussions about abortion. Abortion, is, it's a contentious issue. And I was telling her the truth of what I believe from the Bible, that, you know, God knit us together uh, in the womb, according to Psalm 139, that God has an invested interest in us even prior to when we were born, that he knew us prior to us being born, according to Jeremiah 1.5, right? I'm trying to tell her the truth. But she doesn't care about this. She can ignore all that unless she already knows the truth of the gospel and the sacredness of Scripture would she even be open to hearing it? And so it's this, it's this crazy catch-22 where in order to hear and understand the truth, you must already know the truth. How can you tell somebody the truth if you know that they cannot understand it unless they already know it? It's this circle. Should you just tell them some story you know they won't understand? That's what Jesus did, right? Like, ah, I'll just tell them this weird thing. That'll really throw them off. See, but I think that's where we, we get it wrong. Did Jesus tell stories so that people would not understand? Or did he tell stories because they did not understand? You, you see that distinction? Did he tell stories 
in order that people wouldn't understand, so that people wouldn't understand, or did he tell stories precisely because they did not understand? The, the word difference is small, but the implication is enormous. He was telling the truth when he said that the prophecy is fulfilled. When I just tell them the truth, when I just tell them the reality of it, they shut off. They turn off. Their ears are closed. Their eyes are closed. So instead, he tells them a story. And stories are subversive. They sneak under our defenses and they can plant seeds of truth. So back to the example of this girl. Uh, we were stuck in this sort of quagmire philosophically because she said, look, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a scientist, but it seems to me that if, for instance, a fetus has no developed brain at the time, it can't feel pain, it has no brain activity, this, life's not there. You can safely terminate. And I, and I was like, well, 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 what about the potential, right? According to how she was defining life, what about the potential of life, the potential for the developed brain and all that? What about that? Doesn't that matter? She said, no. The potential for life isn't life. It doesn't matter. And so we're at this impasse. She doesn't understand what I'm trying to say. And so I tell her a story. This is the story I tell her. I say, imagine that there's a man who's in a coma. In fact, he's in what they call a persistent vegetative state. And a persistent vegetative state is when you have literally no brain activity. They can hook it up, they can measure brain activity and see that there are no brain waves. You got nothing going on upstairs. In fact, you're hooked up to this machine that is literally keeping you alive. It's breathing for you. It's doing everything for you. So if they took you off this machine, you would just die naturally because essentially it seems like you're already dead, right? And I asked her, so this guy has no brain activity. The doctor looks and says, there doesn't really seem to be any potential for life here. He's only being kept alive with the machine. Would it be okay to pull the plug? And you know, for her, she said, well, yeah, yes. He wouldn't feel any pain. There's no brain activity, seems to be no potential for life. It would be okay to do that. I said, okay. Now, imagine we had the technology that we could plug in, and it would tell us that nine months, nine months from now, this man would wake up from that coma, that vegetative state, and he would have brain activity, and he would be able to feel pain. Now, would it be okay? Would it be okay for maybe for us to pull the plug at eight months. Eight months and two weeks. Would that be okay? And she said, well, no, because we know he's going to be alive then. And I said, well, then don't you see? Don't you see what I'm saying now? See, and that gave her some pause. Because oftentimes, stories can subvert our defenses that we put around our ideas. We hate it when our ideas are challenged. But story can get under that. And this has been around for thousands of years. So in 2 Samuel 12, you have the prophet Nathan 
coming to King David. King David had, did some, he had already done some bad things. And Nathan is being careful, right? Because this is the king. This is the most powerful person in the world. He could snap his fingers and off with your head if he wanted to. <clears throat> he doesn't have to entertain people who are going to challenge him or say things against him. So Nathan comes and he, and he says, David, I have a story I want to tell you. And he says, there's a rich man who has huge herds, tons of his own cattle. He's very wealthy. And then there's this poor man. This poor man has one ewe lamb. And it says that uh, the poor man loves this ewe lamb, so much so that it eats at his own table, that it drinks from his own cup. It sleeps against his chest. He loves this ewe lamb. It says in the story, Nathan says that this poor man loved that ewe lamb as much as a daughter. Well, one day, a traveler came into town to see the rich man, and the rich man wanted to, to put on a feast for him, but, you know, he, he got rich because he's kind of stingy, and he didn't want to take from his own cattle. So he goes and he takes the ewe lamb from the poor man and kills it to feed to this traveler. And this just sends David off the rails. He gets so angry, and he's boiling with rage, and he says, no, no, this rich man has done wrong. This rich man needs to be killed. Are you kidding me? He needs to pay back four times what he took from that poor man. I can't believe that the rich man would do that. And Nathan had got him, and he said, David, you are that man. You see, because David, David had taken the wife Bathsheba from Uriah and had Uriah killed because he stole from the poor man Uriah. And Nathan said, you have so much and God would even give you more. Why would you take from this man, this poor man who loved his wife? See, the story subverted any defenses that David might have had until it was too late. The point had already seeped into his heart, and he hadn't been able to expel it before it had planted. And that is how parables work. That's how stories can work. They can take down our defenses. So Jesus used story to capture attention, to clue people in to the truth and to teach them and to hopefully change their worldview, right? He, how could he challenge their worldview without them immediately closing off to that challenge? And so we see then these two things, that parables are used because people don't understand the truth. And parables subvert our defenses that prevent us from seeing and hearing the truth. See, but what are these defenses? What is preventing people from hearing the truth? And it's almost always the case that we respond <clears throat> defensively when someone challenges our worldview. When someone challenges how we see the world, we just are inclined to shut it down. We hate it. We hate it when people challenge us. And so let me, let me tell you uh, the same story in two different ways. It's, it's um, uh, the story of our history here in the United States. 
So the pilgrims escaped religious persecution and came over to the Americas, and they established colonies all along the eastern seaboard. Um, and they uh, fought for their freedom against the tyranny of the British Empire that were taxing them without representation. And eventually, they got their independence, and out of that arose these marvelous documents that we still revere today. We have the Declaration of Independence. It says, one nation under God. We have the Constitution that enshrine some of our most sacred values. And then, of course, there was this blot of slavery that eventually there were brave Christian abolitionists who fought against this uh, slavery, um, but ultimately culminated in a civil war in which we resolved with the Emancipation Proclamation this travesty. And then we had the Great Awakening with people like Jonathan Edwards that saw a revival of Christian ideals, Christian values, and so on and so forth. It seems pretty positive, right? Let me tell you the same story. So the pilgrims uh, came to the United States or the Americas at the time, and they did bring their Bibles, but they also brought with them smallpox that literally devastated native inhabitants wholesale, took out entire communities and tribes. And the ones that weren't annihilated by the diseases we brought over, we fought against them. And we made treaties with them only to break them. And eventually we fought uh, the war of, uh, for our independence. And we enshrined certain values, values that systematically disenfranchised black Americans and women. There was, of course, the three-fifths rule that said, yes, uh, black slave men can vote, but it's only worth three-fifths. Women couldn't even vote. This eventually culminated in the bloodiest and ugliest war where we killed our neighbors in the Civil War. And did it eliminate slavery? Yes, the Emancipation Proclamation came two years already into the Civil War, but it did not eliminate racism. Then we had Jim Crow laws, where we systematically disenfranchised black Americans and women still had to fight for their right to vote, and so on and so forth. That's the same story. That's the same story but we're seeing it in two different ways. And see, some of you might have already been like, "Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about one aspect or the other. We have tendencies to sort of shut down when certain worldviews or certain ideas are challenged. And so you had Jesus. Jesus coming in and retelling their story. Retelling the story of Israel and what it meant And he was revealing things to them, details that they may have not reflected on before or seen before. And they're thinking, whoa, 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 Israel is the chosen nation. God chose us. God gave us the commandments. God gave us this awesome sacrificial system. God gave us these things. We're the chosen ones. And Jesus said, I'm the one that the prophets talked about. God doesn't desire sacrifice. He desires 
obedience. He desires mercy. He's retelling their story. The details are there, but they weren't seeing those, and they didn't like it. And so they shut down to this retelling. And I'll give you an example. So my, my mom read this story to me all the time growing up, um, and, and I brought the book uh, with me, or I forgot to bring the book with me. Uh, but the, the famous line is, um, I'll, I'll like you forever, I'll love you for always, as long as you're living, my baby you'll be. And it's this story of this mother who whenever the, the kid goes to sleep, she goes and she holds the child and rocks him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and says, I, I like you forever, I love you for always, as long as you're living, my baby you'll be. This is all very sweet. And she does this as, as, it's an, as the kid's an infant, you know, as a toddler, as a teenager, as an adult. And it's really pretty. It's really touching. But there are details there. Details there that once they're revealed, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. So the last, one of the last scenes is the mom rolling up to his house because he moved out with a ladder on the top of her car. And she breaks through the window and sneaks into his house and picks up this sleeping grown man. And I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This touching story is creepy. This mom is obsessive. It's weird. Right? And if I tell my mom that, like, look, I know she bought me this book to read my son. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, Mom. This wholesome story is actually incredibly creepy. It really is creepy, right? And she said, well, no, 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 no. That's not the story. You're not seeing the story. You're missing the story. You're missing it. I'm like, the details are here. There's a ladder on her car. She knew this was planned, right? This was planned like, I'm going to go and break into this guy's house, right? What if she, what if she, what if she was getting kind of old and she, and she had the wrong house? Can you imagine? Like, I think this is my son. And you wake up and you're in some old lady's arms. It's creepy, all right? So the details are there, but we don't always see them. And when you kind of tell that to somebody who's always read it as this wholesome recount, they might be like, well, no, 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 no. That's not the story. Story helps us see the truth in a way that those who are hardened to hearing it um, wouldn't otherwise see. And, and Jesus actually, he tells them the truth. And in verse 11, he says, because the knowledge of the secrets, the secrets is this word, mysterion, have been given to you. And mysterion almost always refers to a mystery that is then revealed. It's not something that wasn't always there. In fact, it was always there, and it's just then revealed to be the case. And so, in this case, what's revealed is that what was a wholesome story is, in fact, a, a, a creepy recount of an obsessed mother who breaks into people's houses and waits till they're asleep to hold them. Okay? So, Jesus is taking the story of Israel and doing sort of what I just did to that story. And they're saying, well, no, we're, we're the chosen people. He's saying, yeah, but you're missing all these details about how I am here. I am the new sacrifice. I am these things. I am what they talked about. 
And I said, well, that's not my story. So it, imagine this story. There's a, uh, okay, I have time. There's a trapper. And this is a widowed trapper. He lives in uh, a remote part of Alaska with his two-year-old son. And at the height of winter, he realizes that his food stores are dangerously low. And they will starve if he doesn't get more food. So this trapper has to go out uh, in, in, in the dead of winter to try to secure more food. <clears throat> but the weather is too dangerous to bring his two-year-old son. So he entrusts his son with his faithful dog and leaves him at the cabin. And he goes out. But when he goes out, man, the weather gets gnarly. It gets rough. And he realizes that he's not going to be able to make it back that day. And he has to secure some um, security there in, in some trees. And he stays there overnight. And the next day, he does secure some food. And he comes back home. And he sees that the door is wide open. And the whole place is in disarray. That there's blood everywhere. There's blood around his dog's mouth. And there's no sign of his son. And he realizes that the unthinkable has happened. His dog, his dog had nothing to eat. His dog was hungry. His dog was starving. The unthinkable happened. And so the man, seeing this and in the heat of this, takes his axe and takes the dog outside. And he ends it. And you're thinking, man, this is a horrible story. Why, why would you tell this story? This is a horrible story. You're right. Let's pray. Just kidding. <laughs> um, see, but there were details there. Details that he was missing. And when he finally gets in there, he goes back into the cabin, and he's like, i got to search for any sign of my son, at least. Any sign of him. Is there anything left? And he goes, and he searches, and he follows the blood. And then he sees in the corner of his cabin behind a chair is a wolf, dead. And nearby, he sees that his son is cowering in fear under the bed. And he realizes then that his dog did not kill his son. The dog saved his son. The truth is revealed. And the reality is that what the trapper was feeling just then, in that moment, to realize his story, his original story, was wrong. That meant that he did something horrible, that he needed repentance, he needed something, right? The Jews would have to admit that. It's the same thing. When the truth is revealed, it's saying, you need something more. And they don't like that. God, in the person of Jesus, reveals the truth and the details that were always there. And the Jews did not like it. The people listening did not like it. Jesus was retelling the story and re in revealing 
details that were there that changes it for them. So a story can be used when people are reluctant to hear the truth because it subverts our defenses and it helps reveal the truth that was once hidden. And what is instructive in all this is that we should learn in our own witness uh, how to use some discretion in order to effectively witness. I mean, I, I think about when I was coming out of middle school, people have seen this before. I was coming out of middle school one day and I saw a guy with a sandwich board that said, uh, um, repent and be saved or go to hell. And he was handing out these tracts, right? Yelling at little middle school kids, repent and be saved, right? I'm like, oh, that's gonna work, right? He was telling the truth. He was telling the truth, but instead people are not walking away like, man, I need that. They're walking and be like, that is a nut job, right? That guy's crazy. We have, we can tell the truth. We can. But sometimes it will instead do the opposite. It will do what Isaiah was having. It will harden and it will push away. And I love seeing that uh, Christians are getting better at making movies now. They're coming out with actually some quality movies that uh, look really good. We need to be better at telling stories. We need to be better at uh, introducing uh, Christian values into society um, using stories. But we also need to know that we can't, there are times that we need to just tell the truth. And it's okay that it pushes people away. We know that that will happen. We know that that will happen. If God is compelling you to tell the truth, tell the truth. Even if what you witness is it pushing people away. But most importantly, I think, is that we should see in ourselves the tendency to do the same thing. We don't always want to hear the truth, so we close ourselves off to it. We get defensive, and we justify, and we avoid, and we negate, and we confuse, and we obfuscate, and we, and we run. If it's pointed out that we've done something wrong, we point to somebody else and say, well, then they must be wrong too, as if, as if by shifting the focus to someone else, we no longer have to be introspective, respective to ourselves. We no longer have to evaluate ourselves if we can shift the focus to somebody else. We do that. We do that. We avoid the truth in our own lives. And I will uh, give you really quickly an example of when uh, I did something really horrible, really wrong. I, I, I repented of it and I apologize. I'll start out with that. But when I first started out, uh, it was the first year I was helping out with Creekside at the youth group. I was just beginning college. It was Chad. It was in his first year. I believe we went to this retreat at Sun River. We had a, a really big um, youth group at the time. And uh, I had this promise ring at the time that my parents had given me. I have it at my house still. But I would wear it um, it was a promise ring that I would be faithful, I would um, uh, not have sex until I was married, um, and it meant a lot to me. It was a promise that I made to myself, that I made to God, and I made uh, in union with my parents. This is something that is important to me, and they got me this ring, and it was really valuable to me. And when we were all around in a circle at this retreat, I took this ring off, I put it on the ground, I don't know why I did that, <coughs> and uh, after you know, really getting into worship, having a great time. I get up and I look around and my ring is gone. And I'm thinking, okay, 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 wait a minute. 
I'm looking around, I'm looking around, checking my pockets right here, not there, what's going on? Then I start getting angry. Somebody took it. Somebody took my ring, and I'm looking around, and I can see some of these kids. Some of these kids are hooligans. Some of these kids would do it. Some of these kids would take my ring. I know it, right? It is, it's, it's worth money. It is. It was an expensive ring, but that wasn't the point. It was of, of a different kind of value to me, and I was getting frustrated. I was getting angry. One of these kids took it, right? One of these kids took my ring, right? And I was trying to be collected, but man, you could tell I was getting frustrated. And I'm looking, I was looking at certain kids like, I know it was you. You, I'm going to go through your bags. I'm going to empty your pockets. You know what I mean? I'm, you did it. You, I'm, I, I was not, I couldn't look, you know, oh, this great worship service. I love these kids. And I'm like, I, I think every single one of you is a horrible sinner and you took my ring. <laughs> That's what I think, right? I put you in prison right now, all of you, Right? I, I was at the point where it's like, Chad, we need to set up a waterboard in the bathtub. <laughs> right? And I'm getting so frustrated. So I go and I, 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 I go into the bathroom with the lights off and I'm sitting on the toilet and, I'm, and then I start crying. So mad. I'm so frustrated. And I, I don't want to just go and yell at these kids, even though internally, yeah, I want to waterboard them. But Chad comes in and he, and he gets down. And he puts uh, his hand on my knee, and he knows that I'm just so frustrated. Um, and he starts praying for me. Nice guy, right? Praying that, you know, I calm down and praying that I find my ring. And as he's praying, I slip my hands into my sweatshirt, and there's my ring. And I'm thinking, I am an idiot. <laughs> right? I'm thinking, I'm an idiot. I can't believe this. But, 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 the truth revealed. But I didn't want the truth to be revealed. I didn't like that truth because I was already so angry at everybody else. I was already so frustrated. I didn't like that. Now I was embarrassed. Are you kidding me? And so I take the ring, and while he's praying, I put it on the, on the ground, kind of, you know, on the carpet, kind of hidden. I put it on the ground. And he gets done praying for me, and he looks around, and he sees the ring. Oh, my goodness, the ring, right? And there it is. There it is. So he gets to feel all holy. You know, and I saved myself from embarrassment. He's like, I prayed and it came. I'm an incredible pastor, right? And I save face. I avoid the truth. The truth was revealed, but I didn't want it. I didn't like it. Of course, of course, I was absolutely racked with shame. Um, and I didn't like how the truth made me feel about myself. And so I tried to hide from it and not think about it because if I could prevent my, myself from evaluating myself or thinking about those aspects of my life that really needed the truth, right, then I, I could avoid that sort of uncomfortableness. But I couldn't. I, the reality is I couldn't. And I remember at youth group after Sun River, the first youth group, I took him into a room and I cried and I told him the truth and I apologized. And I'm sure it totally ruined uh, a testimony of some miracle that he witnessed to, but um, I, you know, it, it wasn't right. It was wrong. Um, and the reality is that when the truth was revealed, I was, it was established, um, I didn't want to admit it. I didn't want to admit it. And that happens with us. It happened with the Jews that they saw these details revealed and they didn't want to admit it. They ran from it and they closed off and they hardened to it. And I could have done that. 
Um, and fortunately, I didn't. And we have to think about the areas in our lives that we're avoiding or obfuscating or we're confusing or that we're hiding. And we need to allow Jesus to penetrate that. Is it our finances? Is it our relationships? Is it our thoughts? Is it our language? What is it? I think that we all have those. And I pray that Jesus would give us eyes to see it and he would give us ears to hear it, that we would be able to see and hear where in our lives we need the truth revealed. And really, that's the why of story. That's the why of story. It helps penetrate those deep parts of us that we don't always want to be seen, that we don't always want to address. It gets behind our defenses and it touches us in, in, our, in our vulnerable places of our hearts. And so that's the why. And um, next week, I want to talk about the, the how Jesus used stories. But uh, if you could just be in reflection this week uh, in your life in those areas where Jesus can penetrate with his truth. So please pray with me. God, I just thank you uh, so much that you are a God who uses things that work, God, that you use story in a way to, to get inside our hearts, God, to, to touch those areas that we don't want to be seen, God. And I pray that we would be open and that we would be vulnerable and that we would be willing to hear your truth in our lives, God, wherever it is, whatever needs to be seen, whatever needs to be heard, God, that you would help us with that. And um, I thank you so much for this opportunity to, to deliver this message, God, this opportunity to share some of my stories and to share some of your stories, God. Um, and I thank you so much for who you are and how you love us. And we love you in your name. Amen.